0: Turn in your Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter 4. If you're using one of the hardback Bibles from our box out front, you'll find it on page 4. Genesis chapter 4, while you're turning there, although it's only on what page 4, it's not that far in. But just to sort of give you an idea of um, our practice here at Grace Covenant. We uh, generally, typically, more often than not, I will not make any 100% guarantees. Uh, We've already done different things. But for the most part, we will preach through books of the Bible, uh, trying to bounce back and forth between uh, the Old and New uh, Testaments. Um, So we're only just, what, six sermons or so into uh, Genesis. Uh, I think... I'm pretty sure my intention is to stop after 11, do something different, and come back later, uh, rather than uh, do all of Genesis at once, but, but even that is uh, subject to change at this point. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Uh, it's our practice here at Grace Covenant to stand when we read God's Word. So let me ask, if you're able to do that, to do that with us now. I'm going to start in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcane was. Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be with us, in us, among us even now to teach us. To take that which You inspired Moses to write centuries ago and carry it to our hearts that we might be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You have the great privilege this morning, 16 years, of pastoral ministry, and my college major has not ever once helped me in any way, shape, or form until now. You get to witness the the, the one time being a math major in college actually gives some benefit to me. I want you to reach, of course... This is, you know, what, fourth, fifth, sixth grade math, but that's okay. I want you to reach way back into your math memory. And, and do you remember the difference between a line, array, and a line segment? Lines go on forever in both directions. Array has a sort of a starting point and goes on in one direction, but it stops at, at the other end. A line segment has two endpoints, one on each end. It's only a short line. In fact, generally speaking, most of the lines you know are really technically line segments. They, they start, they only go a, a short distance, and then they stop. We have here in Genesis 4 a genealogical line that I think is the shortest genealogy we know in Scripture. It's not a line at all, it's a line segment. It has a starting point and an end point, both of which happen here in Genesis 4, and we never hear from this family line again. It's it's done, it's gone. It's seven generations from Cain to Lamech's sons. It's eight generations from the very first people, Adam and Eve, to the end of, Canaan's, of Cain's line. Now, if, if I were a gambling man, my guess is that at least more than one of you is sitting here this morning thinking, okay, what on earth does a genealogy have to do with us, much less one that's this old and this short? What benefit could we possibly get from a genealogy that's only seven generations long and this many centuries old? Well, we're reminded, of course, of what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Even genealogies in Genesis 4. The, the the first genealogy after the fall, for that matter. First of all, we see in this passage the breadth of human development. Notice Lamech's sons in verse 20 and 21. Jabel is the, the father of all those who dwell in tents and raise livestock. He's a herdsman, he's a, a shepherd. Of some sort. Jabel's the, the father of that sort of line. He was the first to, to master animal husbandry, it seems. He has a brother, Jubal, who's a musician. But don't, don't miss the instruments that Moses records for us. Just on um, Friday, I guess it was, Friday morning, I was at a, a friend's house. They have a music room above their garage. If you're a musician, it is the room to covet. Dozens, I mean, I think a dozen guitars, um, a, a dozen keyboards, a drum set, computers, microphones set up, ready to record voice. There wasn't a single... i mean, So you're, you're looking at this room thinking, I covet sort of the room... I really more covet the ability to play all of those things. But I didn't see a single flute. I didn't see a single oboe. I didn't see a single trumpet. It, it was all for the most... It's guitars and keyboards, stringed kinds of instruments. Notice Jubal, he plays the lyre. It's okay, a guitar. He plays a stringed instrument, but he also plays a woodwind of some sort. So he's he's really talented. He, his His musical gifts span a fairly broad range of kinds of instruments. Jubal plays the harp and the lyre. And then there's Tubal Cain, their half-brother, who uh, is a forger of all instruments of bronze, and he's a metal worker. He's a a work with your hands, he's a heat-up metal, form it into cool tools, instruments, implements, shapes, whatever it is you need, and then use it. He's the, the father of those that, that have that hand skill that I just would love to have. Working with metal and turning it into all sorts of useful, beneficial tools, instruments, implements. You know those families. You, you, you know people that you sort of feel like Got an unfair volume of really cool stuff in the gene pool. You kind of watch the family and you go, "See now, if I could just have a piece of that skill or just a piece of of that ability in my gene pool, we'd be getting somewhere." How did they end up with all of that? You're sort of you look at Cain's line, you look at Lamech, and you think to yourself, "That's a lot." of skill and ability in one family, these three sons of Lamech. Of course, you're also reminded even in this passage that every family tree has those skeletons in their closet. Every family line has that segment of the tree that you just sort of pretend doesn't exist. Friday night I was at a cookout. And this guy sitting at the table was talking about his family coming from Virginia and he had asked his grandfather one time, do you ever go back and see them? Should we go find them? And his grandfather said, don't you ever do that. Turns out this guy's grandfather, his father had told him the exact same thing. Never go to Virginia. Never find your family. They're all crooks. They're murderers. They're drunkards. They're, they're not the kind of family line you need to go get to know. You need to go get to meet. Even with all this skill and ability in Lamech's children, if you back up, Lamech's great-great-great-grandfather is the first murderer in the Bible. He, he kills his brother, his younger brother. I mean, that's... We mentioned last week when we looked at that passage, that's of all the places a boy should be safe. It's with his older brother. And they went out in the field and Cain killed Abel. So there's this stacked gene pool, all these gifts and abilities to, to make things, create music, to keep Animals, there's science and art and woodwork and, and metalwork and working with your hands. There's all this diluted in, into one place, all this sort of brought together in these three boys, the sons of Lamech, even with the sketchy background in their past. The line segment begins with a murderer and ends with. Really gifted, talented people. Three observations from that. First of all, earthly prosperity does not necessarily mean godly favor. We need to know that. Earthly prosperity does not necessarily mean godly Favor. You can't assume that just because everything's going well with you and that, that you're prospering on earth in an earthly sort of way, that that automatically means God is approving of everything you do and believe and think and are. Here's the shortest genealogy in the Bible. All we know about Cain's line from the rest of Scripture is that Cain is the father of everyone who hates God and deposes his people. That's all we know out of Cain's line after Genesis 4. It begins with a murderer. It ends with really gifted, talented, productive people. And we'll see in a minute that this family line really is a model of wickedness, not of godliness. That, by the way, leads to a second observation from this passage the bible talks about this thing we call common grace the bible doesn't use the term we do in fact you're going to get to watch common grace today in matthew 5 uh, matthew 5 jesus tells us that the sun shines and the rain falls on the just and the unjust i want you to do me a favor When the storms come through this afternoon, I want you to look out your window. Look at the homes of people you know to be Christians and watch as what they get is a nice, gentle, garden-soaking kind of a rain. While the non-Christians that live around them either get nothing at all or torrential, damaging rainfall. And then when tomorrow, when the sun comes back out, and those that got the nice, gentle, garden-soaking rain and the sun shining, making their plants grow, and their neighbors are still in the dark. Yes, it's it's utterly ridiculous, right? You've never ever seen that. And that should be kind of cool to watch. The picture is that God sends rain on His people and His enemies. God. Causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. So here from Cain's ungodly line, we get really gifted, talented, skillful, productive people. Which, by the way, leads us to a third observation from this passage. Moses is writing to the people of Israel somewhere between Egypt and the promised land and they are building this thing they call a tabernacle a movable tent in which worship will take place and animals will be sacrificed Israel benefits the church benefits from the work of these three sons metalwork to build the tabernacle and the temple shepherds herdsmen to care for the animals that will be used to sacrifice the the blood sacrifice offered for sin musicians to play when God's people sing. God's people benefit from the breadth of human development. We have this picture here in Genesis 4 of the breadth of human development, but we also get a glimpse of the depth of human depravity. Look at verse 17, Cain has a son, Enoch, and he builds a city, and he names it after his son, Enoch. Okay, let's let's ignore the implied arrogance there. Let's ignore the implied self-reliance there. And let's stick with what's been clearly commanded by God already. Look back at verse 12. Where's Cain supposed to be? Verse 12, Genesis 4:12. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain recites that back to God in verse 14: Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Eventually, Cain decides he's not willing to abide by God's command and will live by his own. Oh, he's, he's done this already. The offering he brought before was, was of his own will and of his own design. Instead, here he says, I'm, I'm done being a fugitive. I'm done being a wanderer. I don't care what God's word says. I don't care what God said to me. I'm going to build a city. I'm going to build a a dwelling, a settlement, a place where I can settle down and live here. Who cares what God says? That's Cain's line. That's the pattern of Cain's people. God's command, not interested. My will, my desire, let's go there. That's exactly what I want to follow cuz cuz what Cain does in verse 17 the amp gets cranked all the way to 11 in verse 19 when Lamech takes for himself two wives the first to take two wives God's command in Genesis 2 a man a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular. It's one man, one woman. Lamech says, I'm, I'm, I deserve two. I'm good enough for two. I can handle two. I don't know what he was thinking. But there's no place in Scripture where having multiple wives actually turns out good. David, a man after God's own heart, his kids... Rape, murder, constant fighting. There's no place in Scripture where polygamy turns out well. Lamech looks at God's command for marriage and says, I'm not interested. I don't care if it's one man, one woman. I don't care what Genesis 2 says. I don't care, God, what you commanded my great, 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 great grandparents about one man, one woman. I'm going to... Do things my way. Your word matters not at all to me. And then he he actually takes it a step further in verse 23. I've killed a man for hurting me. Parents, I, I really hope I'm not the only one that's been a part of this conversation usually, well, maybe not always in a car, but car trips are notorious for this. Why are you crying? Because he hit me. Why did you hit him? He took my pencil. Have you ever noticed how the retaliation just goes way too far beyond the crime itself? He took my pencil. So therefore, I thought it perfectly reasonable to punch him. I mean, that's reasonable, right? You take my pencil, I hit you. That's how it goes. Everybody knows this. That's generally our pattern. That, that's not the pattern of Scripture. That's not the pattern of, of Exodus 21. That's not what Moses' audience would have heard. Wait, 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 hang on. Moses writes in Exodus 21, But if there is harm, then you shall pay. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In other words, the punishment should be a proportional to the crime. It should fit the crime. You and I are convinced, because of our sin, that it's perfectly okay for me to take your pencil And horribly unreasonable for you to get angry about it. But I'm totally justified in belting you if you take mine. That's Lamech in verse 23 and 24. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Cain, Cain said, God, if, if, you, if you send me away from your presence and I'm a, a fugitive and a wanderer, then somebody's going to kill me. God says, no. He puts a mark on Cain and says, if anyone does harm you, then revenge will be sevenfold. That, that doesn't mean seven times. That, that, that doesn't mean God's violating Exodus 21. It means directly proportion, seven, that number of, of completion of fullness. Lamech, in his arrogance... Says, I'm infinitely greater than my great, great, great grandfather. Jesus picks up on this, does he not? In Matthew 18, when Peter says to Jesus, How many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? Hey, that's kind of that's Cain's number. That's, that's a good full number. Let's go with that. Up to seven times? 77 times or 70 times 7 depending on your translation you and I are called to heap forgiveness on others even as Lamech wanted to heap revenge on whoever would harm him for killing this man who simply wounded him I took his life why because he hurt me I Destroyed him. Why? Because he injured me. Cain's line is marked by constant disobedience to God's commands, a hatred for God's word, self reliance, self worship, everywhere down the line. Everything we know of Cain and his descendants is that of blatant disobedience, disregard, even hatred for God's commands. We see the breadth of human development. We also see the depth of human depravity. If we stopped reading in verse 24, you and I would wonder why there's so much Bible left. Right? Because at this point, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, you've never read uh, Scripture before, you just picked it up and started at page 1. You you get to verse 24 and you're thinking, okay, wait. Abel, who was the obedient son, the righteous son, the one whose offering was accepted by God, he was killed by Cain and never had kids. Cain's line is, Horrid and, and disobedient, where's the hope? Where's the good news? Where's the, where's the, for that matter, where's the fulfillment of Genesis 3:15? There was supposed to be a seed. There's supposed to be a descendant. There's supposed to be someone to crush the head of a serpent. Where is he? And almost out of nowhere. We have verses 25 and 26. And we see the height of human devotion. There's a a pattern in Scripture that that you will get used to as we work our way through uh, Genesis, Lord willing. And that pattern is this. Over and over and over again, you get the genealogy of the ungodly line before you get the genealogy of the godly line. You've gotten Cain's line segment genealogy. Where's the godly line? Where's the one who is promised? And here in verse 25, there's yet another child named Seth Cain and Abel's brother. Notice Eve's language in verse 25. She changes. She doesn't say what she said before. If you remember, if you look back at verse 1, when Cain was born, she said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's it's somewhat selfish and arrogant, quite honestly. She's saying, look what I have done. I have gotten a man. Okay, God helped a little. But look what I have done. Her language changes drastically here in verse 25. God has appointed for me Another seed. Another offspring. She uses the same word that God used in Genesis 3.15. He's provided for me, he's appointed for me Abel's replacement. Because Cain killed Abel. The height of human devotion means celebrating God's faithfulness. Eve now remembers Genesis 3.15. She now remembers God's promise to provide a seed, to provide a redeemer, to provide one who will crush the head of the serpent. And she now uses that language as she praises God for His faithfulness to her to provide Seth. Eve celebrates God's faithfulness to... to fulfill His promises. But the height of human devotion also means proclaiming God and His character. It's difficult, isn't it, to watch wicked people prosper? It's a struggle, quite honestly, for you and me to live in a world where ungodly wicked people seem to seem to prosper beyond what's reasonable. In fact, quite honestly, we will sit around and think, God, why aren't you getting them? Why haven't you done something about this? Why are you letting these people prosper like that? And yet here in this passage, in light of those who prosper according to earthly, in earthly ways, artists, musicians, metal workers and animal husbandry, science, shepherding. Along comes Seth. And his line is known for something completely different. His line is known not for its musical ability, not for working with his hands, although I'm sure he could do, we we don't know, we're not given that information. His line is known For worshiping God. For calling on the name of Yahweh. The covenant making, covenant keeping God. Seth and his son Enosh call on the name of the Lord. And at some level, this passage wants you to walk away with this. There's nothing greater that could be said about you than that. Not that you're a musician. Not that you're an artist. Not that you can create really cool things with your hands. Not that you master animals and critters. But that you call on the name of the Lord. All those other things are fine and good, but they pale in comparison to the lasting relationship with the covenant making Covenant-keeping, God of the Bible. Let me make a few applications from this passage. The first is sort of the obvious question. What is it deep down that you really want people to know you for? What is it that you really want people to know about you, to remember about you? Is it it your creativity? Is it your music? Is it your handiwork? Is it your your way with animals? Is it your way with children? Is it any number of things? This passage says the greatest thing that we can know of anyone is that they call on the name of the Lord. They they proclaim God's glory and majesty and splendor. We could turn that around. We could turn it a different way. What is it that you boast in? What is it that you celebrate about yourself? What is it that you, that you kind of go, this is what's great about me. Is it some skill? Is it some power? Lamech celebrates his own power over others that he could snuff out a life simply for wounding him and, and glory in that. Take great pride in that. Or will you boast in the name of the Lord? See, this passage says that if you're here this morning and you're trusting in anything other than the promised seed, if you're trusting in your goodness, if you're trusting in your ability, if you're trusting in your power, if you're trusting in your wisdom, in the things you know, the things you can create with your hands, the people or critters or whatever that you can master, whatever the case may be, if you're trusting in anything other than the name of the Lord, then you have no hope of eternity with him, It says, lay all of that down and instead run to the promised Messiah. Run to Christ. Trust in Him alone for your salvation. He promises to save all who call on the name of the Lord. Will you call on the name of the Lord now? This passage urges you to call on Christ. A second application from this passage sometimes we watch the news and we get nervous. Sometimes we watch the world around us and and politics and war and all sorts of things and we start to think Christians are going to die. There aren't going to be any more Christians left. God's people are going to be snuffed out. Everybody's opposed to to Christ and His people. We're doomed. We're we're, going to die. There'll be no more Christians left. What are we going to do? Where should we run and hide? This passage says God always has His people. God always has His people. You get to the end of verse 24 and He has none at this point, right? You get to the end of verse 24 and all that's left The one righteous son has been destroyed. The ungodly line is all you know. Where are God's people? Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son. Fear not, believer. God has His people. The news may tell you otherwise. Your experience may even tell you otherwise. Scripture says God always has his people. Christ says that he's building his kingdom and the gates of hell itself cannot stand against it. Be encouraged and comforted by that truth. A third application from this passage. Some of you this morning may be struggling with assurance. You may be here and wrestling with doubt. You're you're just not sure, quite honestly, that you believe God's promises or that you can or that you should, quite honestly. You're wrestling with with assurance and, and doubt. This passage actually is a comfort and encouragement to you because it shows you yet again, that even in the darkest places, God brings forth the fruit of His promises. Even in the dark shadow of, hey, Cain's line is all there is, there's wickedness all around us. He's promised a seed and fulfills the promise right here in this passage. Has Christ promised to save you if you trust in Christ? He is faithful. Has He promised to see you through to the end? He is faithful. Has He promised that those whom He justifies, He ultimately glorifies, He's faithful to bring those promises to completion? You have every reason to trust God, to fulfill His promises. This passage, even in the darkest moment, God brings forth the fruit of His promise of a seed to deliver His people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the fact that You are at work in this world. That You haven't simply created it, spoken it into existence, only to then sit back and wring Your hands and wonder and hope and beg and perhaps even fret from time to time, biting Your nails, not sure what's going on. We thank You for the promise that you have provided a seed. That you have appointed a child for Adam and Eve to replace Abel. That you have appointed a seed to bring forth the fulfillment of the promise that one would come sure his heel would be bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent. Father, would you strengthen our faith and trust in Christ? Would you grow us in our love for Christ? Would you equip us to serve Christ? God, we pray that the reminder that you are at work, that you have provided your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you have your people will only equip and fuel us to serve you and to proclaim your name, that we would truly call on the name of the Lord, not just for an hour or hour and a half on Sunday morning, but throughout the week, and proclaim Your glories, Your majesty, Your promises fulfilled in Christ. For it's in His name that we ask Him. Amen.